Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The leaders of the U.S. and Iran traded insults yesterday. The U.S. president said in the event of an attack on U.S. troops, the U.S. would obliterate areas of Iran. U.S. willingness to go to war in the Middle East has been high for decades. Let's talk about the U.S. eagerness to fight and die in the Middle East with Andrew Basevich. He's Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. His most recent book is America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. And his upcoming book is The Age of Illusion, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. Good to talk with you, Andrew Basevich. It's good to be with you. I was struck by one of the things you've been writing in columns recently, and it was about nearby Marseilles, Illinois. And Marseilles, Illinois has something that no other place in the United States does. Uh, What is it? It's a memorial uh, to all those American uh, servicemen and servicewomen who've been killed in our wars in the Middle East. And very importantly, that includes interventions of various kinds that predate 9-11. So, for example, the Americans who were killed in 1967 by the Israeli attack on the USS Liberty, their names are included in this memorial. And one of the reasons that I find this so impressive, well, a couple of reasons. One is that it's really an effort by ordinary citizens, but it's also because it gives us an appreciation of how long we have been militarily engaged in that part of the world and how many different places at such great cost and with such minimal success. So the people who put this memorial together in Marseilles understand something very important about our recent military history. And uh, what they understand is something that few members of the elite, either the political elite or the media elite, are willing to confront. Why do you think that is? Because we're you know, very big on war memorials. There's plenty of them. And there's, you know, the Korean War. The, the, you go up to a war memorial and it's uh, very busy these days. But the Middle East did not get a shake. Well, I think in part because that war actually uh, it continues. There is no end in sight. And I think that there's been a reluctance on the part of uh, members of the elite, again, both the political elite and the media or intellectual elite, a reluctance to ask first order questions about what we have been doing militarily in that part of the world and with what result. I mean, we, we are either at the end of or perhaps in the middle of a war scare with Iran. And there certainly is a certain amount of chatter, uh, both uh, hoping that such a war will occur or bemoaning the prospect. But the possibility of a war with Iran doesn't get discussed in the broader context of wars going back and military engagements going back to 1967. And that Marseille's memorial, in a very tangible, palpable sense, invites people, invites visitors to reflect on that larger context. What's it like at the Marseilles Memorial? Uh, Who put it up? What goes on there? Not much. Uh, The day I visited, which was a month or so ago, I guess, there was virtually nobody there. It was a weekday, um, but there was virtually nobody present. I think there was another older couple there at the same time I was. Of course, Marseilles is a small farm town, kind of in an out-of-the-way place. It's not the equivalent of a memorial that's on the Washington Mall. So not a lot going on. And who put it up exactly? Well, that's another wonderful thing. Uh, Illinois bikers. 
maybe I shouldn't make judgments about people who ride motorcycles, but I mean, not fancy people, you know, ordinary citizens, many of them veterans. My impression is that the impetus for this, the support for this comes from bikers who are veterans, many of them who served during the Vietnam period. Uh, They're the ones who created this. They're the ones who sustain it. They're the ones who ensure that those who died in the previous year get inscribed onto the granite stones that are the centerpiece of this memorial. And the names are up to around 8,000 or so. That's correct. Yeah. I'm talking with Andrew Basevich, a military historian. He's a retired Army colonel. He's Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History from Boston University, and his most recent book is America's War for the Greater Middle East. He's been uh, writing about the Marseilles Memorial that he's visited recently for the wars in the Greater Middle East. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the Palestinian effort to uh, revive their economy by the U.S. and Jared Kushner, and we'll talk with a Palestinian businessman about what's happening there. Stay tuned. Andrew, I wanted to kind of go back to the base question that you're asking about our involvement in the Middle East and you know, the threats and things that we're hearing about Iran now, it's so familiar. It's almost like wallpaper. And we pay more attention when there's a drone shooting and, and that focuses the mind. But it's almost like no amount of verbiage can make a lasting impact or it seems meaningful because it's always happening. Um, how do you assess how we got to this point where we can just kind of like threaten obliteration one day and just move on the next? Well, I think two factors come into play. And the one is that uh, the foreign policy elite has become thoroughly uh, militarized. Uh, I mean, the language of American diplomacy, for example, uh, that all options are always on the table, the privileges, the idea, the expectation that the use of force is somehow central to the conduct of diplomacy. Uh, And I think that that is a pernicious idea and contributes to our unwillingness to really assess the costs and consequences of our uh, military efforts across the Middle East. And the second part, of course, is that, I mean, to state it quite baldly, the American people don't care. Uh, the creation of the all so-called all-volunteer force at the, at the end of the Vietnam has created a gap between the American people and their soldiers. And, of course, we all, you know, profess to support the troops. We profess to admire the troops. But as a practical matter, the American people don't much care where the troops are or what they are doing. And this is allowed, in my judgment, has allowed that militarized elite to have a far freer hand in deciding when to start a war. And I mean, I think that's captured in the discussion of what to do about Iran. It's a discussion that has virtually no historical context. It is a discussion that is shaped by ongoing events, you know, what happened in the Persian Gulf over the past 48 hours. It's a discussion that's shaped in many respects by the belief that somehow a willingness to use force enhances American uh, credibility. And the credibility is just somehow this great value. I mean, the criticism directed at President Trump for ordering airstrikes and then canceling the airstrikes. The criticism has focused on, oh, gosh, American credibility has somehow been uh, terribly damaged by refraining from initiating another war. I mean, from my point of view, it seems to me if there's a problem with American credibility, and I think there is, it stems from our unwise, our promiscuous use of force. 
post 9-11 period, where we embark upon wars, uh, sometime under false pretenses, often without a clear understanding of what our purposes should be. And then the wars go on and on and on. And to my mind, it's that record of misjudgment and incompetence that probably undermines our credibility in in the eyes of others in the world, whether they are friends like the Europeans or whether they're adversaries uh, like the Chinese and the the Russians. So credibility, I think, comes from prudence. uh, And prudence has been absent from U.S. behavior for the past uh, couple of decades. One of the people who's been writing about what the U.S. is all about is Brett Stevens in the New York Times. And he thinks that the country is personified by its greatest generation and World War II. And uh, for D-Day, he wrote about the United States at the time willing to go to war and make sacrifices to defeat an ideology. Is that a legitimate response to what's going on in the Middle East? We're there. We're going to defeat an ideology, and it's going to be worthwhile for the United States, its interests, and the world. I I think the comparison is absolutely ludicrous. And it begins with a profound distortion of World War II and what it was about. And who who participated? I mean, the recent columns by uh, Stevens on D-Day focusing on on what we should do in Iran, uh, very, very interesting in, for example, failing to mention the participation of the Soviet Union in World War II. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the Red Army defeated uh, Nazi Germany. We sure helped, along with our allies, Canadians, Brits, but the decisive front was the Eastern Front, the decisive theater, the decisive battles, Stalingrad. We would not have won the war absent the contributions of the Red Army. That's simply a fact. And along with that fact is to consider that uh, our then uh, ally, Joseph Stalin, was not in the least motivated by a desire to protect freedom and spread democracy. <laughs> he was himself a totalitarian dictator, just about as evil as Hitler himself. And his purposes were, A, to ensure the survival of the Soviet Union, and B, if A could be accomplished, then to expand Soviet power and Soviet uh, influence. He was waging a war of imperialism. And once you factor into the narrative the role of the Soviet Union in World War II, then the kind of uh, uh, interpretation that people like Brett Stevens assigned to the war uh, evaporates, becomes unsustainable. And I think the war, that war, still exercises this profound influence on the way the average American sees our history sees the history of the recent times, and therefore to allow the war to be misinterpreted is to invite a misunderstanding of of who we are and how we got to this particular moment in contemporary history. So it's a really pernicious tendency, all this greatest generation uh, uh, kind of stuff, I think really gets in the way of understanding the world we live in. And uh, again, I think that the implications of that are necessarily pernicious. I'm talking with Andrew Basevich. He's from Boston University, where he's been a military historian. He's also been uh, an army colonel in the past, and he's been writing about the Middle East. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about efforts by the U.S. and Jared Kushner to revive the Palestinian economy. And we'll talk with a Palestinian businessman about what's happening there. Stay tuned. 
You know, in your piece about Marseilles and the war memorial there for the greater Middle East, you suggest that all the candidates for president come show up and say something at that memorial about what their plans are for uh, U.S. military force and things. And it would be a busy day at the war memorial in Marseilles if all 25 uh, Democratic candidates showed up and did that. I was thinking about uh, the candidate that I know is a war veteran, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, who's attracted a good deal of attention. I went and looked up how he would, I think, respond to that because he's made a foreign policy speech that was pretty detailed when he was in Indiana recently. I I thought I'd quote from it and get your reaction to it. Um, The next president must set a high bar on the use of force and an exceedingly high bar on doing so unilaterally. When America acts alone, it can only be because core interests are at stake and because there is no alternative. Notably, this is not currently true of the situation in Venezuela and is not true of the situation around Iran. It is the difference between the necessary response to 9-11 in Afghanistan and the self-defeating invasion of Iraq. In short, it's the difference between Normandy and Saigon. So there's someone who there is more articulation. And people say Obama, you know, won in part because he opposed the Iraq war. They wanted somebody who was different about the use of military force. As first, I'd heard uh, Mayor Pete's uh, uh, comments. And I have to say, go Mayor Pete. It sounds pretty good to me. You bring Obama into the conversation. I think one of the great tragedies of the Obama presidency is, uh, I believe, that his instincts very much aligned with that quotation from Mayor Pete. But over the course of eight years of his presidency, for whatever reason, Obama was not really able to act on those instincts. And instead, he ended up perpetuating the wars that he inherited, and perhaps more importantly, perpetuated the, the inclination to use force. Uh, that very much had developed in the, since the end of the Cold War. Now, he used force in different ways. You know, the emphasis on missile firing drones, the emphasis on special operations forces, the disinclination to use large numbers of ground forces, which would almost necessarily result in a high level of American casualties. But the fact of the matter is, Obama did not significantly change the trajectory of militarized policy. And in a sense, the second tragedy of the Obama era is that his one genuinely creative uh, act of statecraft, and that is, I think, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, ended up being, of course, immediately overturned by his successor, bringing us to the current situation. I mean, I wouldn't say that the so-called JCPOA solved the Iran problem. There is an Iran problem, but it made a solution possible. Trump uh, dumped uh, that agreement and in doing so, of course, set in motion uh, the events that bring us now to what is potentially the verge of yet another uh, war in the greater Middle East. Another war that, in my judgment, would not serve the interests of the American people and probably would simply contribute to greater turmoil in this region where our overriding interest ought to be uh, to bring about stability in this region. So 
I can't help but think that uh, President Obama in in his retirement, as he's uh, working on his memoir, must uh, must be somewhat chagrined uh, by the the gap between his intentions and the outcome of his presidency. I mean, even President Trump has intentions to not get involved in foreign wars. He seems to have articulated those pretty well, and that seemed to add to his appeal. But in office, he seems quite interested in uh, you know, the people around him are you know very pro-war. Oh, no, you're exactly right. Uh, to say that I have a low opinion of President Trump uh, uh, understates the case. But he has explicitly said, I'm against wars. I'm against forever wars. But such sentiments don't seem to translate into anything like effective policy. Why not? Well, partly because uh, he's got a notoriously short attention span, uh, doesn't seem to have much of a capacity to actually follow up in a sensible way on, on things that he says. We see that over and over and over again. And as you just said, he surrounds himself with uh, advisors who are not on the same page as the president. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear that Secretary of State Pompeo and uh, National Security Advisor uh, John Bolton want nothing more uh, than for the United States to find itself in a shooting war with Iran uh, with regime change in Tehran uh, as the ultimate objective. And, of course, you can fantasize uh, that given the American military superiority, which is real, uh, that that goal could be accomplished uh, neatly quickly, economically. That's what the hawks fantasized about Iraq back in 2003. And of course, what we ended up with was a costly quagmire. Uh, It's impossible really to make predictions about how any war is going to unfold. uh, But I certainly uh, would caution against thinking that a war with Iran would come to a neat and tidy and successful conclusion. Andrew Basevich is a military historian from Boston University. He's a retired Army colonel, and he is most recently author of the book America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Middle East History, and his upcoming book is The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory. Good to talk with you, Andrew Basevich. Thanks very much. Coming up in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about efforts by the U.S. and Jared Kushner to revive the Palestinian economy, and we'll talk with a Palestinian businessman about what's happening there. Stay tuned. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The White House this week unveiled its economic deal for Palestinians at the Peace to Prosperity Workshop, the efforts led by Jared Kushner. Here's Kushner describing the goals to Reuters. Uh, So we're doing a workshop in Bahrain uh, where we were invited to the region. We developed a very extensive economic plan for the region. Uh, The plan would invest about $50 billion in the region, Uh, It would create a million jobs in the West Bank and Gaza. It would take their unemployment rate from about 30% to single digits. Uh, It would reduce their poverty rate by half uh, if it's implemented correctly. It's a 10-year plan. It would double their GDP. Uh, The reason we're calling this a workshop and not a conference is because uh, we want to get feedback and hopefully finalize it so that we can then coordinate a lot of the uh, aid efforts and investing efforts to really drive results. 
With me to talk about the Peace to Prosperity workshop that's being led by Jared Kushner is Sam Bahor. Sam is a Ramallah-based Palestinian-American businessman. He's the chair of Americans for a Vibrant Palestinian Economy. He's been writing about the issue in the foreword, and he wrote an open letter to Jared Kushner as well that's out there. Nice to talk with you, Sam Bahor. Thanks for having me. When you hear Jared Kushner talk about the goals of the plan, cutting poverty in half, single digits uh, for unemployment, it sounds like a miracle, uh, $50 billion. You've read the plan. You sat down with 130 pages of it. Why did you get out of this? Well, it's not the first time that we've heard pie-in-the-sky discussions about building our economy. But when I read the plan, I had some very, very negative reactions. I've been here for 25 years. The plan is not original and is not comprehensive. There is not one project listed in the plan that we have not seen before. These are projects that we have been working on for the last 25 years. And the plan ignores the question of why these projects have not come to fruition after the entire world has been engaging them for so long. And I would say the reason is because of 52 years of Israeli military occupation. There is a Israeli boot on our neck. And we're not able to breathe economically or otherwise. And the plan and the entire Kushner and company team are totally refusing to even acknowledge that there's a military occupation on the ground here in Palestine. Well, when you talk with other members of the Palestinian business community, the investment community, what do they want? Do they see anything in you know this influx of capital that the Kushner wants to bring? If we read... The text of the plan, absence of any context, these are great projects. Apply them to Palestine or apply them to Youngstown, Ohio, and it will be good. The problem is that this is an ongoing process that we're seeing. This economic workshop is step number 10 that the Trump administration has already taken. The nine previous steps have all been very political, very unilateral in trying to damage the Palestinian society. And then all of a sudden they come through with an economic workshop to have a chat. For us, and I would say that the private sector has a similar opinion, we live in a crime scene. Our economy has been raped and continues to be raped for the last 52 years. The U.S. has been standing at the door allowing it to happen. And then all of a sudden Kushner and company walk up to us, the victim here, and says, hey, stop. Why don't we go for a pizza and have a discussion about how to buy some artwork to put up on the bedroom walls to make it look better? We are not interested in beautifying our cages that the Israelis have created. We finally, the Palestinian leadership, has put its foot down and said, this charade has to stop. The occupation has to come tumbling down to give any economic plan a chance for success. And that, I think, would be the uh, opinion of the private sector. Plus, the private sector knows very well, like any private sector in any country, that without a political agency engaged, there is no billions of dollars that are actually going to reach the economy. And in a way, the plan actually says that. It says this can't happen without Palestinian approval. And my question to the Kushner team is, who do you expect will approve it? Because you've dismissed the Palestinian political agency. You've closed the PLO office in Washington. You didn't invite the Palestinians formally. And then you say the Palestinians have to agree. Who exactly has to agree? So it's, it's child play 
I mean, as a consultant, I can speak at plan. Uh, Daniel Kutzner, which, who was the former U.S. ambassador to Israel yesterday, wrote saying that he would give this plan a C minus to an undergraduate student. If this was an employee bringing me this plan, I would fire them. It is pure desk research. No analysis, no field study, no stakeholders, only great looking projects. And again, if we applied those to Youngstown, Ohio, I'd be very happy as well. I'm talking with Sam Bahor. He is a Ramallah-based Palestinian-American businessman and chair of Americans for a Vibrant Palestinian Economy. And we're talking about the uh, Peace to Prosperity Workshop put forward by uh, Jared Kushner in Bahrain. People have been reading some things about how this fits in with uh, the broader peace plan that the Trump administration wants to talk about. And I was there was an editorial in the New York Times by Danny Danan, Israel's ambassador to the U- United Nations, and it called for Palestinians to know when to give up, and it called for a national suicide of the political and cultural ethos and said that would be a good thing if they're you know, if there were no Palestinian authority or there were no political leaders and, and you, you started from scratch again. What does that sound like? I'm shocked, to be honest with you, at the level of discussion that this entire episode has reached. I mean, in a leading paper of record, someone of stature in the United Nations calling for a party, which is a non-member observer state in the United Nations, to commit suicide. It's, it's unheard of. Not only is it not reality, it's totally dismissing anything to do with politics, anything to do with common sense. Remember, the U.S. is the last party to come to its senses, usually. We saw that in South Africa, for example. Here, the same is happening. The majority of the countries of the world recognize the state of Palestine. It's the U.S. that put itself with four Pacific islands and Israel to say no to Palestine. I tell my younger kids that, listen, we are close to statehood. Don't drop the bid for statehood. Because if we do commit political suicide in terms of dropping our bid to create a state on the ground, the alternative is a default organic decision to move towards civil rights between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. Can Israel live in a one-state reality? I don't think they can. I believe the Palestinians can live in that state. That's where we started from. So um, is this something that most Palestinian businessmen think is happening? Do they think a one-state solution is what the future holds? I don't call it a solution because for me, a solution, both countries have to live on after the day of signing an agreement. So the one-state outcome that will turn this into a full-scale apartheid reality. The private sector knows very well how heavy that boot of occupation on our neck really is. Six months ago, I was actually challenged by a a rabbi coming from the States, and I I was speaking to a group that he brought of rabbinical students, and I said there's 101 things the Israelis can do tomorrow morning to reduce the tension here, not even end the occupation, just to reduce the tension and he asked me where I can find that list. And I said, shoot, now I got to go write it. And I wrote, as a single person, 101 restrictions that are applied to us. Everything from not giving us access to 3G and 4G frequencies, all the way down to 
movement and access restrictions on the ground, servering our ability to have a proper postal system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For us and the private sector knows very well that there's not only 101 restrictions, there's probably 1,000 or 10,001 restrictions. So they see that the younger generation is losing hope. And that's the most dangerous thing to lose. Because if they lose hope to move forward in a two-state solution, which, by the way, the U.S. sold to the Palestinians decades ago and we bought into it, if that is lost, we're not going to disappear. We're going to call for our civil, human, and political rights from the political agency that has taken responsibility from the river to the sea. And that's where this is heading. I work every day to make sure we don't go in that direction. Not because I don't think a civil rights movement is the right thing to do, but in our context here, it means perpetual conflict. And that's not what I'm giving my kids if I accept a one-state reality. We're beyond that. This administration, like they're doing around the world, is creating havoc by dismissing all of the work that has been done previously and trying to start anew without political experience, thinking they can use a business kind of experience to move forward. And to be very honest with you, even from a business perspective, they are very sloppy. If they wanted to build a building in New York, let alone an economy, a building in New York, wouldn't the first two questions be, what laws apply and what are the building codes? That's all the Palestinians are asking for. What are the political parameters and what are the codes that we have to follow here? And what this administration is telling us, don't worry about that. Come to Bahrain and plan your building. Make it pie in the sky. Can you describe uh, industries that are compromised by restrictions right now, what they face? There's businesses out there that are trying to get something done. and Absolutely. I'll give you the one that brought me here. When I read the Oslo Peace Accords back in 1994, I was very much negative about it. I didn't see it as being a end of the occupation. But I did find in the Oslo Accords back in 1994 that the Israeli side had given the right to the Palestinians to build separate and independent telecommunication networks. Those are the words that are used, separate and independent. I picked up with my family and relocated to Palestine to do that. When I got on the ground here, I understood that the Israelis gave us that right, but they did not release the natural resources and the movement and access to make it happen. For example, they maintain total control of the airspace above the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So embarrassingly, I say, we received 3G on our telephones last year. 3G is an exiting technology. The world is at 4G, and as we know because of the Huawei thing, that the world has reached 5G. Israel only released it after a 12-year battle trying to get them to release this frequency was something the entire world got involved in. They also control all the importation of equipment. Everything has to go through Israeli borders because we don't have access to the outside world. Not only do they deduct 3% of all the custom fees, like now they hold our custom monies and don't transfer them to the Palestinian side. They also control all of the movement and access in the West Bank. So when we in the telecom industry, when I was there, and that applies up until today, want to lay a wire or put a microwave link between two Palestinian cities, it crosses Israeli-controlled territory in the West Bank. And they have restricted the ability for us to streamline connecting our cities and villages together. 
So in one sector, you can see after 25 years, it is not separate and it is not independent, not because we don't want it to be. Of course, we Palestinians want it to be that way. There's more money in being separate and independent in telecommunications, but Israel refuses that. I can give you a second example as well, which is the largest economic sector in Palestine today is stone and marble. We have some of the best stone and marble in the world. The mines where these quarries are located are in the West Bank where Israel has full Israeli control. Remember, Israel controls 62% of the West Bank, the occupied West Bank. Israel gave Israeli companies permits to come into the West Bank, take the land, actually take blocks of land back to Israel and sell it in the global market as made in Israel stone and marble. An Israeli human rights organization took that issue to the Israeli high court, the equivalent of our Supreme Court. And four or five years ago, they ruled and it was shocking. And they said the authorities, the Israeli authorities in the, in the West Bank have the right to give Israeli companies access to those mines. So Israel doesn't see a green line. Israel does not see an occupied territory. That's why I say in their mindset, it's very clear that they see that they are the controlling party between the river and the sea. So we Palestinians are doing the Israelis a favor today by maintaining, like the rest of the world, that this is a military occupation because military occupations can end. But if the Palestinians redefine their self-determination and move away from statehood towards civil rights, the game is over. Israel will not exist the way we know it today. Um, and that's why, for the hell of me, I can't think of why an Israeli citizen will sit and watch their country driving drunk on power, because they're about to fall off a cliff. Sam Bahor is an American uh, businessman. He's a Ramallah-based Palestinian-American who is chair of Americans for a Vibrant Palestinian Economy Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the Peace to Prosperity workshop proposed by Jared Kushner. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes with Catalina Maria Johnson, and we'll take a look at the summer music scene in Chicago. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEC.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Catalina Maria Johnson. Hey, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. It's uh, time for a fiesta. <laughs> it is time for a fiesta, and we're going to take a look at some of the music that's coming up uh, in the beautiful summer season when we all get to go outdoors and enjoy summer festivals. Who are we listening to here? This is all the way from Colombia, Bombe Stereo, and they'll be here for the Taste of Chicago. And just a little factoid, up until very recently, uh, 2017 to be exact, there had not been a major Latin band at the Taste of Chicago. So uh, we're, we're continuing a wonderful trend last year and this year now with Bombe Stereo. So we desegregated the Taste of Chicago. <laughs> great. Uh, now, uh, this band, uh, they have a, a great sound. And I was looking at some of their videos. They're viewed 70 million times. They're, they're very popular. They are. And they uh, had a collaboration with Will Smith uh, maybe a year, a little bit more back. So then they even kind of hit the mainstream in in some major ways. Um, I have to say, I saw them way back when in a little club in Copenhagen. And they hit the stage, and Eliana Salmet, now they've gotten very fancy. They've got brands. They've got, she's got swimsuit brand, I think. And uh, she's from a coastal area of Colombia. But when they hit the stage, they were just, you know, they were very young and fierce. This is, oh, almost 15 years ago. And she had one half of her head shaved, and they everybody just stopped in their tracks. Because at that time, now it's become very popular. We'd never heard anything quite like it, this kind of electronic, punk, psychedelic, cumbia, mishmash fronted by these amazing vocals. I mean, and uh, they've become... Um, they have some of the major anthems for every summer jam, and that was Fiesta, and I think the taste is going to really enjoy their jam, Bombesterio. So that's Thursday, July 11th at the Taste of Chicago. So that one's coming up pretty soon. July 11th is pretty soon. And they're also performing um, with a Puerto Rican band of some note. Exactly. Cultura Profetica. Yeah. yeah kind of, again, um, not veterans because they're very young and still in many ways, but uh, veterans of the Puerto Rican scene and also kind of an indie um, intense experience not to be any sound yes <laughs> um definitely all of these are kind of uh, you know african uh, rooted it's very powerful music yeah all right let's swing over to millennium park one of the beautiful facilities in all the world to see music and you've been you were out there looking at chucho valdez the other night i saw your uh, your facebook <laughs> post where where you were hit. we had some fun stuff going on there and it's must it's a great thing it is the millennium summer concert series is just really spectacular you just can't go wrong i mean i picked one but uh, all of the international music that they'll be presenting is fabulous a lot of the other it, just the curation is extraordinary so and you just can't beat you know the silver wings of the pritzker and they change colors and the crowds always just incredibly enthusiastic and I'm and then half the time they start um, everybody starts dancing which makes the uh, security very nervous <laughs> <laughs> but but there's always this point at which you know the the people kind of take over uh, the dancing takes over and I'm sure it's going to happen this night Jupiter and Oques from the Congo and so amazing let's uh, listen Hey, 
That's Jupiter and Oakwest. They'll be at Millennium Park on August 15th. Tell us something about them. Well, uh, they're led by Jupiter Bokonjici Ilola, and he is uh, from formerly Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're very familiar, I think, here in the U.S., if you're into like clo- global music, with a suku sound that comes out of the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, but not as familiar with some of the more kind of traditional roots music that that Jupiter and Oquest bring us, but he's the son of a diplomat, so he actually grew up uh, between uh, Tanzania and East Germany, and uh, so he was exposed to a lot of like American and British funk and rock. Um, he, again, kind of pulls from the lesser-known traditions uh, of his land and uh, just amps it up. It's such fun music. Um, uh, and the, he, they're performing, Jupiter and Oquest is performing with Nora Mint Somali, who is uh, a Mauritanian woman uh, in the griot tradition and a fabulous vocalist. And I love that Mauritanian sound. Yeah, and uh, they've both been here. It's been a while since uh, Nora Mint Somali was here. Uh, Jupiter and Oquest was here for our World Music Festival fairly recently, but there's no better place to see them than uh, at the Pritzker and at Millennium Park. All right, that's August 15th. Mark your calendar for Jupiter and Oquis and Nora in Somali. And check out the the entire calendar. There were a lot the of things to choose calendar. from. I mean, there's a there's New Orleans Chawa coming up, uh, Rev Siku. I mean, there's just tons of stuff. Don't just just go to the Millennium Concert <laughs> Summer Concert Series and uh, and make sure Mondays and Thursdays you make it. All right, next we're swinging over to Pilsen Fest. Not quite. First oh, square roots. First square roots. <laughs> All right. Almost. Tell us something about the Square Roots Festival because it's a uh, it's a little different. Yeah, it is. It was it was formerly Folk and Roots uh, Old Town School and Music's kind of annual bash, musical bash. Now uh, now Square Roots and kind of has has an in, has indoor as well as outdoor stages. Not in the park, but like in we in sort of the hood, the neighborhood that Old Town is in. There's several stages. There's also classes from their teachers. I have to say that I, I take West African dance from EDCs from Senegal. And okay. so you'll have a, you know, family-friendly activities. And then always just a, a wonderful selection of music. Um, this year, they're celebrating Bloodshot Records, Chicago's own. So there'll be um, a lot of really good samplers from Bloodshot Records. But the international, of course, which is worldviews per view, so to speak, we have some Garifuna music. Um, Garifuna being Afro-Honduran, uh, an Afro-Honduran indigenous population that speaks Garifuna, uh, descendants of shipwrecked uh, enslaved persons, uh, the they they say very proudly, always free in the Americas. Black people, always free, and this is got Rube um, Rodi and the Garifuna flavor. Tell it in 
That's Rodi Castillo, a Garifuna, and he is playing at the Lincoln Square Roots uh, Square Roots Festival on Saturday, July 13th. And at, he's got a great sound. I love the, it's kind of a reggae flavor. Well, this is Caribbean music. I yep. mean, this is, uh, the Garifunas were, ended up on in two countries because the borders come after the peoples, usually, in Belize and Honduras and actually in Guatemala also. Uh, Rodi is from the Belizean uh, side of the Garifuna. And by the way, I found out in looking at Garifuna flavor that it's also, his family also has a restaurant here in Chicago. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, Garifuna flavor. So we could get real, real Caribbean Garifuna flavor somewhere. You certainly can, uh, sonically and uh, nutritionally. <laughs> All right, so he's at the Square Roots Festival in Lincoln Square on July 13th. And Which is his, Old Town's uh, yeah, annual bash. The old, the old Town annual bash, and his food is here year-round. <laughs> so that's great. Uh, this is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and this is uh, Weekend Pass or um, <laughs> the Global Notes. And uh, Catalina Maria Johnson is here, and we're chatting about some of the festivals that are going on. And now we're going to go to Pilsen Fest. We are. And Pilsen Fest has really uh, put on some beautiful stuff for us every year, again, kind of towards the end of the summer. But uh, you can't beat the food, can't beat the sounds. And I chose some classic uh, Northern Mexico, Norteño, Colombian also. This is Celso Piña. Now, he's his music uh, is accordion-based. It's from Northern Mexico, but he also really draws a lot on Colombian uh, roots music that is accordion-based, like Vallenato. And uh, it is the most danceable stuff ever. So I'm looking forward to seeing Celso Piña at Pilsen Fest later on. And let's listen to some Celso. <laughs> Celso Pina, he's coming to Pilsen Fest August 17th and 18th. That's a little later in the summer. Uh, he's kind of, um, he's an older guy. He's in his mid-60s or something. Uh, he's been, yeah, he's uh, been an important figure in this kind of music for some time, yeah. And so he's kind of got an older sound sometimes, but really contemporary. Other times he's completely uh, yeah, up to date. He's right, well, he's, he's never stopped playing in all those decades. Um, and, but this music is, uh, well, it's a little older than he is. It's <laughs> hundreds of years old. And some would say this is, this is cumbia. This is classic cumbia. And some would say it goes back to cumbe, uh, and African roots in Colombia, uh, 
probably from the colonial times. So some people say that cumbia, and I would say that's a good guess since it sounds like cumbe, <laughs> um, comes is 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 from those times. But of course, it's been mixed with indigenous and European rhythms and. It spread all throughout Latin America. The cumbia is in Colombia, in Chile, in South America, in Argentina, and certainly in Mexico. All right, Celso Pino once again at Pilsen Fest, August 17th and 18th. Catalina Maria Johnson, it's great to talk with you about all the outdoor festivals. One of the things we were doing last year was talking about Sunfest, a festival that you went to in London, Ontario. It's the biggest global music fest in North in. Canada, Canada, yeah, and uh, we decided we would haul up there and go there ourselves. Worldview's taking its show on the road after the Fourth of July. We're going to do a few shows from uh, all points in between Toronto and Chicago. Let's say that, and one stop. We're going to kick it off at Sunfest in London, Ontario. And meet some of the people there. It was started by a friend of yours. Tell us who started A friend and colleague, or a colleague that became a friend, who uh, was a Guatemalan refugee himself, Alfredo Casage, and his family, Mercedes Casage. I mean, they're they're 25 years strong. So uh, we'll be celebrating World's View 25th and Sunfest 25th in one fell amazing musical swoop. So that's coming up uh, in July, and it's a free festival if anybody's by London, Ontario, and around the 4th of July. It'll, it's up there, and, <laughs> and, and it'll be a riot. It, it, it's going to be awesome. Not just the music, but they have amazing, um, amazing food. I really like – it's wonderful when festivals kind of get both things right, and they certainly do. Sunfest in London, Ontario. Catalina Maria Johnson is the host of Beat Latino on Vocalo, and she is a culture and music writer. Follow her on uh, on social media at Catalina Maria J, and you will be considerably hipper than you are now. <laughs> so stay tuned. Worldview comes back tomorrow. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Bye.